0: Welcome to the Audiences Podcast, the show that helps you discover new audiences and learn how to develop your own. I'm your host, Francesco Dorazio, founder and CEO of Pulsar, an audience intelligence platform for researchers, marketeers, and PR professionals who like to put audiences at the core of everything they
1: do. And I'm Sal Morton, producer of the audience's podcast and person in charge of keeping us all on track. So what's the podcast about, Fran?
0: So every episode focuses on a cultural trend, an idea, a brand, or a new emerging behaviour and ask our expert guest three simple questions about it. Who's the audience of the thing? How has that audience evolved over the past few years? And where is he going next?
1: So this time we're looking at the audience of Dust, which is a unique one. So uh, we've spoken to Jay Owens from the London Review of Books who has just brought out a book about Dust. And uh, Fran, you've known Jay for quite some time. Is that right?
0: Yeah, so I've been uh, working with Jay uh, for many, many years. Uh, we both have a research background. I met Jay on Twitter and uh, immediately decided that it was going to be an incredible hire for uh, the team at Pulsar, what we were focused on doing research on on the web and specifically on social media. So we forged this kind of like partnership for for a few years, and then all of a sudden she uh Um, left and when she left she told me that she was going to write a book on dust so since the moment she left I've been looking forward to this day where I could actually see this book because I knew it was going to be amazing and it is amazing and then the book release um, coincided with the um, um, launch of the podcast. And then, you know, the next idea came out, which was like, we should do something on the audience on Dust. The reason why I found this really interesting is that Dust as a concept is completely Uh, alien to any specific characterization in theory, and so it makes the perfect subject for discussing how do you build an audience around something that in theory doesn't have any specific characteristics to it that define it as a cultural object. And so I started thinking about this idea of dust and uh, uh, the the book that Jay um, has published and um, how it fits into the concept that we're discussing and the conversation is actually quite fascinating because it ranges from Dust as a byproduct of modernity, to dust as a um, as quite the core, one of the core symbolisms of Christianity, and comparing how that kind of like evolved from that symbolism to what we see today in dust as a byproduct of modernity and pollution uh, is it, quite is quite an interesting range. And so it made it even more interesting in a conversation with Jay discussing what audience does she envisioned uh, mm-hmm. kind of like uh, gathering around this idea of dust, which is what made this conversation really interesting for me.
1: Yeah, I think that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Because in this recording, not only did we learn about the audience of Dust, as in Dust, you know, why it's important from a social point of view, why it's in point from a geographic or scientific point of view, for example, its contribution to climate change, mineral dust, household dust, digital dust and detritus, and um, like you said, um, how we think about dust culturally and religiously. But we also got to learn about the audience of a book about dust, like who's interested in reading a book about dust and Honestly, anyone listening, you should be interested. It's a really cool book. But yeah, it's really interesting to think about the audience of Dust from those two lenses. Um, But yeah, let's stop talking about it and get into it, shall we?
0: Let's do it. Today, we are exploring a very interesting one. It's the audience of Dust. Joining me is the one and only Jay Owens, who's the author of the recently published Absolute Page-Turner, Dust, The Modern World in a Million Particles. Jay argues that dust is a legacy of 20th century progress and a toxic threat to life in the 21st. There is a lot to unpack in um, the audience of dust and there's a lot to unpack in the book. So Jay is a seasoned hiker. She's a writer. She's a researcher in that particular order. And currently the head of audience at the London Review of Books, which publishes some of the world's best writing on culture and current affairs. And she gets to find writing like that, the audience it deserves. Welcome to Audiences, Jay, and thanks for joining us.
2: Great to see you again. Thanks for bringing me on here. How are you and where are you today uh, I'm in london I'm actually hiding in the office podcast studio and um having just got back from Barcelona and uh, yeah back into the city
0: amazing so um me and Jay met um a long time ago. We met on twitter in in uh, in two thousand and nine I think do you remember how we actually met there was was there a specific tweet or how did i don't remember how we actually started
2: um, there, there was it was the point when face was working the company face as it was was working on co-creation and i think i responded to some of the initiatives that you guys were putting out there um, and sort of suggested coming in for a coffee as a means of getting out of my slightly boring market research job into a rather more interesting one um, and it seemed to work and so we were colleagues for about what eight and a half nine years something in that vicinity
0: so um. something like that yeah i think we ended up working together for like uh yeah many years like eight or nine and uh and we're mainly studying culture and audiences online um do you do you, can you remember can you still remember any of the studies that you you got involved in any of the uh. big hits
2: Oh Commander Hadfield and why why video goes viral a study we did for Twitter looking at um, four or five videos that went huge and trying to understand the sort of the network dynamics about how they were shared between communities and we made particularly beautiful social network visualizations from that or well you did that bit more than I did. Um, and I remember that getting shared by, shared by the Daily Mail and Commander Hadfield himself. Singing it, it was in the Daily Mail, It was, I said, we've been in the Daily Mail. This is this is a career <laughs> highlight. You know, TechCrunch, whatever, but Mashable, but Daily Mail. Job,
0: That's fake. Job done. Job yeah. done. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, we were basically studying virality at a time where everybody was trying to figure out what it was. And, um, and, and, You know, looking back today, if I look at what we do with Pulsar and how we build, uh, what the technology does today those were really the foundation years where we understood that the audience really drives anything that happens in terms of virality to the extent that is actually more influential than the content itself. And so we kind of like from those studies, we actually understood that understanding the shape of an audience was more important than trying to fit into a specific content recipe to get to a virality um, kind of like outcome. Um, And then, you know, the following 10 years have been about building that vision and that framework and so those were quite foundational years and I uh, I, I, I look back to those years with fondness um, and, um, <laughs> and in a way actually the virality stuff is kind of like um, social dust if you like if you look at social media as um, you know the um, especially the social media that gets neglected and uh, unliked, unreplied, unretweeted, but that exists like a dead satellite in space. That's kind of like cultural dust that floats around us every day.
2: It's so ephemeral, right? Some of it It sort of blows up in some kind of big whirlwind for like, you know, 24 hours or something like that. And there's a whole flurry of activity around something. And then it just sort of vanishes, it dissipates and... You know, culture moves on, those posts are never looked at again, those, those likes just you know fade into an API somewhere. And um, that ephemerality of media is something that kind of continually interests me, that we have this incredible archival ability through APIs to go and study the kind of sedimentation of social media content over time, whereas the way it lives in the world, it sort of floats in, in very much a constant present.
0: Yeah, until someone like me and you Goes in there and kind of like pokes that dust and unsettles it.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, or, or an intrepid journalist goes and looks to see if some you know new political candidate has said something immensely racist in the past, which they usually have. Um, so uh, you've got to be careful about the sediments. You know they, they can be stirred up, but uh,
0: true your fossils can come back to life like in Jurassic Park and come back <laughs> to haunt you and so and the reason why we stopped working together really is that you abandoned me to go write a book which um, you have recently published called Dust. So it wasn't me, you were actually writing a book.
2: It, was, it wasn't It was you, Fran. I loved you very much. Good. Um, but yes, I uh, signed a book deal in the spring of 2019 and realized that to write a book set of sort of sites um, across the world, um, a book that's clocked in at over 110,000 words, which is fairly hefty, 400 pages. Uh, I needed large drifts of time. I envy the novelists, you know, who can write in an hour a day every morning and actually produce a book at the end of it. But nonfiction is a time intensive, archive intensive, travel intensive occupation. And so freelancing for the last four years was what uh, enabled it to happen.
0: Yeah, I bet. And how, how did the book come about? Like, how did the idea of uh, research in dust come about? And how did the you know, what were the stages from it to kind of like getting the idea and then morphing into a book? I remember there was a newsletter involved.
2: Yeah, no, even before that, it's uh, two, two really strange coincidences, really. I mean, I first started writing about dust during my master's degree in urban geography uh, in 2008, uh, 15 years ago, goddammit. And um, I was sort of sitting on my sofa in my little studio flat, which was called a new build and should have been clean and sparkling. But it wasn't, and there was dust gathering under my kitchen table, and sort of you know fluffy bits under the sofa, gathering on the bookshelves. And I'm sort of sitting there, desperately trying to procrastinate. And I'm like, hmm, should I clean that? I could definitely clean that. That's more important than trying to you know find something to do, do some research on. And started thinking seriously about that. Such you, know, what is this dust doing? Where does it come from? What does it mean? What is the labor of cleaning that it involves? What's the cultural history of, of thinking about dust, um, wrote a master's thesis on that, then sort of put it to bed. Um, you know, what, what have I done a PhD on after that? Some nonsense about ruination, not really worth thinking about. And then 2016, eight years later, I was invited by a friend to, to go on a road trip in California, in the sort of the American Southwest. And yay, cool, jump on a plane, and just find myself in the dustiest 10 days imaginable, driving into a forest fire, dust devils dancing by the side of the road, dust-covered ghost towns where the curators carefully nurtured and kept the dust to make sure it made ye olde western ghost town look sufficiently ye olde and western and authentic. Um gold, uh, gold mines where you'd have um, dust gathering on boxes of abandoned explosives. And it was the first time I'd been to California and dust just turned out to be I was traveling with two other geographers. You know, we were talking with about what we were looking at. We were talking about what we were seeing all the time and you know, I thought I was, I was writing. I was going to be writing a piece about some um, mid-century Californian occultist who was involved in setting up the uh, NASA JPL uh, Jack pa- Jet Propulsion Lab, Jack Parsons Laboratory. Um, But dust actually turned out to be the story. It turned out to be the thing that connected the landscape and the history and the environmental history of people and place. So I just kind of started writing from that point forward in an email newsletter that I called Disturbances and to see what I might have to say, to see if anybody might be interested. And it turned out I had a lot to say and it turned out people were interested. So that was uh, probably the best decision I've ever made in my life.
0: Sounds like it. Uh, And where did that research take you? Like you obviously started from California and you, um, you, you were drifted to pretty kind of like diverse places in the, in the last few years doing the research for the book.
2: Yes. My misery holidays. Um, very, very short (laughs) on lying on nice beaches, drinking little pina coladas. Um, and I sort of go to see the dead lakes of the world. So I went out to, um, Western Uzbekistan, Karakalpakstan, uh, on the border of Kazakhstan, where the Aral Sea was once one of the largest lakes in the world and is now a hu- is a desert, um, empty sands, some little growing saxophone trees. And, you know, they're now pumping uh, natural gas where the-, where the water used to be. Um, So one of the largest man-made, you know, in terms of sheer square area, it's the largest uh, man-made environmental disaster on the planet, I believe. Um, I also went to Greenland, um, where, of course, the melting of the ice cap is another environmental disaster. Uh, Dust brings in, as dark colour, it brings in warmth from the sun and helps hasten the melt of the ice, which is, of course, not what we want to be happening. Um, And then a lot of time in uh, the American Southwest, in New Mexico and California in particular. I'd like to get out to Iran, but uh, visa issues there. There's a lot of dust there, but it's very difficult to write about because uh, the Iranians don't let it's in.
0: Maybe one day there'll be a dust visa where you can just travel (laughs) based on dust requirements.
2: I was thinking about that one. The slight challenge is that water politics is then a matter of national security. And if you're photographing people's water installations, they generally think you're a spy. So uh, let's not do that. Let's let's keep myself out of jail.
0: That sounds good. Um, Yeah, don't go to Iran yet. Um, So... You mentioned a few types of dust just in this kind of like brief uh, geographic exploration. So there's like urban dust, there's desert dust, there's underground dust, there's volcanic ash or dust. There's in the book, you also start connecting things like microplastics, there's mineral dust. How many different kinds of dust are out there? Like, have you
2: mapped it out? Well, you really can't because everything's going to turn to dust given time. Um, And if we classify it by its origins, then every single material on the planet, give or take, has the ability to to dry out and fall fall to pieces. Um, Mineral dust is the big one in terms of weight. You know, that um, about um, there are billions of tonnes of that aloft at any particular one point in time. Um, But when you get into the city, we're then looking at air pollutants like carbon soot, uh, sulphate aerosol when they choose to be solid. construction dust in cities is a really huge problem. Cement has really tiny little particles, so building sites produce a huge amount of dust. Roads, brakes, asphalt, car tyres, um, even as cars have actually got really clean in terms of their uh, pollutants that come out of the engines, um, they're still producing an absolute tonne of dust from the brakes and from the friction against the roads. Everything in the world that produces friction um, ends up producing producing dust, essentially, as things, things rub against each other and don't get on yeah
0: yeah so it's dust is like um it, it's just really more than a series of things isn't it it's like more like a, a, a philosophical idea that encompasses endless manifestations and you generally use dust in the book as a proxy for the Anthropocene or rather as the the context for the Anthropocene can you Talk a little bit about that relationship.
2: Sure. So I, I like to think of it as a sort of friction between people and planets, as a way of making some of that friction, that, that not getting on, that uh, human carelessness very often in the way we take well don't take care of our environments in the way particularly that we don't think about our waste where it goes um whether that's you know waste from burning fossil fuels of course um from construction and roads and things like that as i have said or from water pumping which and uh, farming which produce a lot of the mineral dust as they destroy soils and um you know creates the ability for soil to get airborne which is is what mineral dust is it's you know, it, there is a sort of willfulness in the approach, right? The sort of the main Anthropocene stories, everyone wants to talk about big melting glaciers or the Amazon jungle being destroyed. And mine is like, let's try to find the forgotten corners of it. Um, that's, you know, you need to write a book about something that nobody's ever written about before, This so that certainly helps. Um, but it also allows to think about... I think maybe the Anthropocene not just as focused on one or two particular places, but to be something in the very air, to be something at you know, planet-wide scale um, and, you know, all around us and, and, and um, something that we are deeply part of.
0: Yeah, but but you, uh, and you talk about that, the, the connection between dust and the Anthropocene as um, as an acceleration of the production of dust, but dust is obviously something that exists beyond and before the existence of man anyway, so what we're talking about here really is the rate of acceleration of that of dust generation a process that is has been... Brought about by human presence. Yes,
2: absolutely, and it's it's interesting because the way dust has huge contributions into climate change and Earth systems and weather patterns. You know, uh, we make more dust. That means there are more tiny little nuclei for water to condense on. Uh, helps increase the formation of clouds. This changes how light reflects. Light from the sun reflects off the Earth, so it can increase. Um, it can cause both cooling and it can cause heating. Um, you know, at the worst, we create uh, huge dust storms, um, dust, it can even become a mineral itself, loess, loess as a sort of rock formed by wind-blown sand. And so it's a way of recognising, you know, a little bit like the butterfly effect, tiny actions, but at massive scale, these produce huge planet-scale environmental effects. Mm-hmm.
1: This episode is sponsored by Pulsar. What is Pulsar? Pulsar uses AI to analyze live data from the web and the media to help you understand people at scale and with nuance. We're talking about social media like X, Instagram, Reddit, Pinterest, YouTube, as well as search data and any media from TV and radio to print news and podcasts. And of course, you can bring your own audience data like NPR or CRM to analyze alongside everything else. Brands like Amazon, agencies like McCann, media outlets like The Guardian, and organizations like the UN use Pulsar to understand their audiences and create products and messages that matter to them. If you'd like to get a live signal from your audience, get in touch at pulsarplatform.com.
0: So obviously that reconnects massively on that discussion we just had on Big Data before on the (laughs) tiny particles, kind of like... um, lathering up to large scale effects. But in general, the, you know, one of the main connections you, um, you draw between, you know, man-made environments and behaviors and dust is this connection between dust and death. Uh, and it's pretty much about the exploitation of any physical assets. And as you explained, the rubbing of humans and planet, uh, but is that it? Cause you also talk about, um, visiting some of the bleakest places on Earth and um, and then finding them strangely vital. And I found that observation quite interesting because, uh, to me, there's this other side of dust, which is the rebirth from dust uh, that I think you're starting to see when you observe that there's vitality in those places that are kind of like the bleakest places on Earth.
2: There's Yes, absolutely. There's a, a new book out, a compendium of writing called The Desert Isn't Empty. And that's a sort of really important line of thinking that, you know, that when deserts have been thought of as empty, used for nuclear testing, used as kind of waste grounds to throw away people and waste into. But instead... What's interesting, What I realized actually when I was writing about dust, I realized I was writing a book about water to a great extent. I didn't go in thinking oh, I am writing a book about water politics, but places become dust bowls because the water is pumped away from groundwater. That a place I write about a lot in the Owens Valley in the Eastern Sierra in California uh, became a dust bowl because all its water was taken to Los Angeles to enable the city to grow. And when desert environments are vital, it's Because even with the tiniest amount of water, from rain or from groundwater, um, they are able to spring back into life, that seeds that might have been um, dormant in the ground for a decade can pop back, that plants that have been sort of, you know, just look like sort of grey brown straw, uh, it starts raining and the desert has the ability to bloom, super blooms you get in the the Mojave and further south in California are astonishing. And they just pop out of nowhere, Um, even in very, very dry desert valleys in Uzbekistan, just the tiniest amount of water that was there is able to enough to to sustain a very specialised sort of life that can get by, you know... um, types of plants, halophytes that like the salty environment and can grow in places that you wouldn't think anything else does. Little mice that eat the little plants, you know, little little dragonflies that uh, pollinate everything. Um, slightly bigger sort of desert foxes with big ears to cool themselves down that live off the little mice that live off the little plants. And so everything has its little ecological niche. I think that's the lesson. And as long as you, you know, it's, it's not going to look as beautiful and lush as the parts of England I've grown up in. Um, but you have to tune yourself into these landscapes and sort of, instead of go, oh, that's so bleak, that's so empty, why not set off a nuclear bomb there? You know, go actually, what is living? Um, the plants and the animal life, and of course, in deserts, people as well, that um, the australian deserts for example seem intensely empty because but the way that aboriginal people are living in them traveling very very large distances not necessarily building sort of permanent villages but moving with the seasons moving with the water moving to hunt um those deserts are inhabited and are occupied and it's a mistake to see them as empty or dead yeah totally
0: uh, and i'm i'm I was actually, I was kind of like heading exactly in that direction when um, thinking about the regenerative processes that emerge from dust. One example that um, I read about was how the rainforest in Brazil actually wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the Sahara Desert that basically fertilizes the rainforest in Brazil by carrying phosphorus. Or the Atlantic. Yes. And that's that's and really amazing example of how life can be re-
2: regenerated from dust. And like a lot of the oxygen on the planet is actually produced not by trees but by algae in the oceans. And those algae need iron and minerals to live. Where does that come from? That's mineral dust that sort of whipped up from the deserts, blows for five days, and then is deposited in the Pacific. And, you know, so the oxygen, you know, the very substance of life on Earth is dust is actually tied into these fundamental bio-geo- biogeochemical processes. There's a tongue twister.
0: Yeah. So this is a subject that basically can morph into a million different subjects. And it's actually relevant to many, many, many different jobs, problems, um, you know, ideas. Um, Did you have a specific audience in mind as you were writing? Like, or were you driven by the subject and then just fine tuning the story while developing an audience at the same time? What was the dynamic there?
2: it's a bit of both I mean I think when you're doing creative work you do have to be led by the idea you have to be led by the truth of the story you're trying to tell you have to be led by your own gut instinct for what's fascinating um, if you're writing a book to please other people if you're writing a book to appeal to some perceived persona it's bullshit and people can tell um, you know you you have to have some sort of fire that's kind of guiding you and, and follow that and that sounds arty and wanky but I think it is unfortunately true um, but I am an audience researcher by background and also through writing my newsletter, I had and through seeing how people had shared my writing on social media, I did have a pretty clear idea of who was interested in it. Um, When you write a book proposal, you need to talk about who the audience is. You share uh, what are called comps, comparative titles that try to help to indicate to publishers that, yes, there are, you know, his book about dust sounds absolutely crazy, but actually, here are previous books on salt and sand or, that have uh, got major science writing prizes, and you might be interested in. You, know, this is one of those. <laughs> um, so I could see I had kind of I was always kind of had two audiences that are probably interested in what I do. Um, one of them, I, I have named them as a segment. I call them digital design dads. Um, they are. They all seem to either work in design and tech companies or tech in design companies. Um, a sort of more professional type audience, people who are into I uh, probably we read Wired magazine. I think that's the kind of the touch pole. Um I had some early press in Wired in 2016, which I think helped bring that audience to what I do. Um and it's people looking for you know who are interested in science and technology who um have probably as um have got interested in environmental issues, green tech, um, all of the climate issues in recent years. Um and you know, are coming at it from a quite a science lens. Science and, and big travel writing, the the adventure of going to new places, of Greenland, cool. I mean, Greenland, green, very cold, in fact. Um, you know, and and it's that mix of travel and science writing that appeals to that audience. Um, I then think there's a second audience who are more probably more, skewing more academic, um, more social science oriented, more left wing. Um, you know, who are, I certainly have a number of readers from academic sides who have talked about my work, sometimes cited it, which is very flattering and are interested from fields of design, architecture, geography, social science sorts of spaces. Um, and they're scary to write for because they're intensely critical and they're very smart and they know when you're sort of oversimplifying something or uh, making, making lazy claims that don't get fully backed up. But, um, I says books, for example, uh, a woman called Anna Singh uh, wrote A Mushroom at the End of the World um, about five to eight years ago, I think. Um, books like Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer are both, you know, she's an academic ecologist and biologist, um, but also Brady um, Sweepcast is a book about uh, indigenous views on e- ecology and recognising that actually um, those views help us do better science and that the um, biology and indigenous ways of relating to plants are complementary um, and, you know, that e- ecology is an inter- interdependent system. And, you know, those that's sort of, if you know, an academic scientists on the one hand, but it's also reaching into a much wider audience beyond that. So there's a space there as well. So sort of those two core audiences are the ones I've had in mind.
0: So, um, yeah, that, that, that checks out as a proto-audience for Dust. And so we're saying tech deads and uh, ecology... Academics, but when you when you characterized, I, 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 by the way, I feel seen in the first segment uh, massively. But although I don't, I don't, I don't read. Why are there frequently?
2: Yeah, my American editor when I sent him that sort of segment definition, he was like, "Shit, I just got some." Uh, he just got some solar panels or something like that. And he's like, "Damn it." <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, what? Uh, why are you defining it like uh, as a as a male audience? The first segment I find it quite interesting. Like, why is it tech
2: dads and not tech moms? I mean, none of these things are one hundred percent male or female, but yeah. Certainly- but I'm interested in
0: your perception
2: it's that's a decent decent question it is just who you see sharing these particular things and i mean even when i've been going out to other writers to get asked for blurbs and constant recommendations and things like that quite strongly a lot of the other there is a skew in science writing towards a skew in non-fiction overall towards male writers um and men and women in publishing, it's is quite established, do read quite different fields. Fiction has become very female dominated, Non-fiction or male dominated. Um, in, in nature writing is, is quite balanced. There's diff- lots of different sorts of nature writing. Big systems books tend to skew a little bit more masculine um and of course you know these these things are like any person any personas are absolute fictions people all have a bit of both in them um there are tech moms there are you know um non-binary artists who are interested in social theory there are, there are everybody's all there yeah. um you know, you have to take your personas with a pinch of salt and I certainly do. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And obviously I love poking holes in those personas as much as I can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: It's it's interesting. The 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 um Writers, I mean, I suppose most aren't necessarily interested in data. I'm probably about to discover what I can start to get from like Amazon uh, author data platform. I haven't, uh, yes, you know, if what sales information that gives you Nielsen Book Scan. I don't think we get access to it, but I can possibly ask my editor very nicely. Um, I would be super interested in learning more about who actually does buy it. Um, because you know, I have this guess, I have this hypothesis in my head. Um, I don't know if the data will ever really come my way, but I want to know. Um, I'd like to be wrong. Perhaps there's a whole bunch of, I don't know, seventy year old retired engineers. Maybe they're into it. Cool. Maybe oh, you know, it'd be nice to get taken up by the TikTok uh, TikTok fiction audiences, and they can rip me apart for one reason or another. We will see. Well, TikTok actually- being a major major marketing venue
0: huge, especially for these two segments. Uh, but I'm thinking about um, a segment that I'm not seeing in your two initial personas that um, that somehow is tangential, but actually is, um, you know, I can think of like a, a very specific type of persona that has been kind of like vibing with dust for a couple of thousand years, and that's the religious persona. <laughs> like if if you look at like dust in the bible you know the whole idea that you uh by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken from dust you are and to dust you will return so dust in the bible is like this like um uh, like massive idea massive piece of symbolism that uh, represents the frailty of men and women, the humiliation the repentance the the idea of letting go the idea of uh, large numbers as well so dust is used as uh you know a bit of like a proxy for big data in the bible so it's <laughs> it is generally dust is something that is seen as like something that is like very bad something that is damned um are you onto a huge, unforeseen, mega Christian lit hit? I mean,
2: won't turn it down if anyone chooses to buy a twenty-five pound hardback. I'm very grateful, and, and you are welcome to. I, you went, you mentioned this, and I'm like, oh wow, have, have I neglected this as a, as a theme and as a, a strand of symbolism in the book? I mean, I think I was I was raised rather secular, unfortunately, so it's not a sort of mythology. I'm deeply. Embedded in myself, I'm, I'm familiar with the lines from the Bible, but I haven't used them as a sort of metaphorical throughline in the book so much. Um, in a sense, you know, I was, I was writing a book about modernity. I'm writing a book about humanity's fall from grace into into a state of carelessness. And I mean, it, you could spin it out as a much deeper philosophical metaphor than I perhaps have. Um, it's uh, there. Well, I just think.
0: I just think you could use a couple of pastor or priest influencers for promoting a book.
2: you <laughs> <laughs> think my agent also has one of the reverends that writes on his books. Um, or Fer- I could, Fergus, guy called Fergus. to forget a little testimonial of um spiritually incorrect or otherwise.
0: Uh, but one one of the things, apart from the kind of like influencer reverends and um, that whole um Christian scene, which um. I think it's still interesting to explore, but how do you think the symbolism of dust has changed with modernity and capitalism? As in, what does modernity and capitalism add to um the way Christianity has deployed dust as a concept?
2: Great question. And I think I think in the Christian model there is it, it, it has a presence. It has a sort of memento mori, it has a ethical reminding value of where people come from and a sort of humbling thing that has been lost under capitalism that you know when we think about the um, carbon pollution from fossil fuel burning for example has just been done for in particularly in the last 50 years when we really know its true ecological cost it's been something that is economically an externality it can just be pushed aside it is the Laziness of the forgetting of that of you know not um, you know ethically the model of the janitor is the sort of the ethical figure here somebody who cleans up after other people and it's that we have forgotten in a sense of you know kind of growth at all costs Um, so so in modernity dust is forgotten on the large-scale economic side. Um, I write a bit about um, the history of cleanliness in the home, in domestic spaces, from you know, Florence Nightingale in hospitals to the architect uh, Le Corbusier, who will seek to drive dust and in all its forms out to create a very white, sterile uh, domestic environment. Um, it becomes something in its and it's a reminder of death and frailty and decay and the inevitability of those things is very anti-modern um you know it's its vulnerability it's the planet is vulnerable we are vulnerable we all turn to dust um it's a message about vulnerability and care and modernity has not historically been terribly good at that um so the book kind of asks you know what model next we have seen this fail us um and i certainly don't give any solid you know, prescriptive answers but in ecology from the like the most complex computational climate science and the scientists at nasa i spoke to who would tell me it's all interconnected that's the message they wanted us to take away from from studying aerosol dust it's the whole planet is interconnected to the uh, indigenous activists and ecologists who said exactly the same thing um that becomes the start. Um, Dust reminds us we're connected to the world, and I think that is a very important ethical lesson. Love that,
0: love that. Um, from these proto audiences that are, that have these. Pretty good understanding of dust and um you know in its many different forms where do you think this audience can go next once the kind of like once the book starts to circulate and it starts to get more kind of like uh, in the hands of very different people and uh, uh, and people start creating content off the back of it like have you uh, do you have an idea what your ideal kind of like dust um profile looks like? What movies do they like? What fashion do they wear? What music do they listen to? (laughs) Are they they your necks or are they your friends? Uh, What politics do
2: they have? Well, they wear Rick Owens' dust, or at least I try to. It's rather expensive, (laughs) but Uncle Rick is is the man, and the clothes are very beautiful, and I plan to do an entire promotional tour only wearing dust-coloured outfits. I think it's sort of audience, the thing you want to reach into, for example, is the kind of people who are maybe into, you know, David Attenborough type documentaries, for example. Some of the film spaces about the beauty and the astonishment of the natural world I start tapping into audiences like that. You know, you don't read a book about dust because you have a prior interest in dust. You're not coming in there from that. You have you read a book about dust because you have some desire to be fascinated by nature, to be fascinated by science. You have a previous interest in ecology perhaps um you have previous interest in history and the hopefully the the goal of the publicity campaign for the book is to get press in places which make people read an excerpt or see a review and think oh that connects to the things i'm interested in that could surprise me that hopefully the sentences are good and the writing is engaging enough to take people on this journey so um in in are awesome. that I am hoping for some design-conscious architect types and uh, art types, though, to to pick it up. I think it's um, it's, it's suitably avant-garde. If we are definitely into our Japanese fashion, our sort of um, deconstructed Yoji, Yam- Yoji Yamamoto and uh, Issey Miyake type nineteen um, eighties black-clad uh, serious architecture clothes. No, um, this isn't a Versace <laughs> Gucci crowd.
0: No, so they listen to Bauhaus and Killing Joke.
2: Um Coil, Bauhaus will take some of that. Coil um, experiment. This is the book to take to the uh, Cafe Oto to your experimental music sessions. It's, it's, uh,
0: Are they into <laughs> techno or house? No techno. Mm-hmm. Techno, yeah. We, we don't
2: Just have no techno. hand claps, you know, no no piano breaks yeah. here. This is a book <laughs> about the end of the world. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um Okay, that's pretty, that's that's a pretty clear kind of like uh, evolution for that audience from the tech
2: dads to the... um, Via the verso-leftists, that's probably a sort of... I file them in with the academic, ecologically climate change minded sets of people, but the the verso-leftists are a gang.
0: So now that you start to see this audience of dust assembling, and I think this will kind of make it clear to them that they are into dust. Mm-hmm. So when you get at this phase of developing an audience is that, uh, that audience starts self-reflecting and understanding that they like that topic. And when you see in those moments is also that, um, um, things start to develop around that audience because people see that there's a market for that. And, um, an idea that came to mind where, when, when researching for this podcast is: I was in Iceland at this uh, this thing they call lava show, where they were using dust from the 1918 eruption of the Katla volcano, and they were turning it again into lava in a controlled environment just for entertainment. <laughs> um, once you build an audience of dust, and obviously is this part of a cultural kind of like a trend. It's not just you writing a book on dust. There's many things that are converging in a direction. But let's say there's an audience of dust that emerges. You see an area of kind of like entertainment to develop off the back of dust. As in, you know, you've seen for like, for example, the some of the travel experiences are now and have been for the last 20 years dedicated to cataclysmic or apocalyptic places that people visit as an experience in itself do you see something similar happening around us now that an audience has been defined about it
2: <laughs> I think you you if I was being brand minded you could probably spin things off a podcast would probably be one of the sorts of venues to start um, you know, bringing people I've spoken to for the book um I think there is as you were talking about with Christianity I think you could build a whole kind of self help empire first bringing you know, bring it more into the angle of thinking through the Anthropocene and grief and recognizing our, you know, thinking with responsibility for our actions in the world, but also the. You know how how a lot, a lot of the book is about scale, feeling very tiny in a very large world, but also recognizing how we influence it. Um, I, th- I think somebody who's slightly more therapeutically literate than I am could probably uh, play some quite interesting lines with that. Um, I'm probably thinking more literally in terms of just like okay, what what I might what this might open up in terms of other writing, I might do podcasts, uh, well radio, um, you know, what kinds of reporting and things I might do next. Um, um, building the dust brand empire. Uh, not necessarily my immediate goal, but that's a, an opportunity I might be leaving on the table.
0: I mean, you could get into movies. I could see a whole entertainment <laughs> round in movies about dust. Uh, like uh, They
2: already made Blade Runner 2046, which is a definitively dusty film. Just there a the dusty um, one. When there's huge dust storms that sweep down on Beijing and turn it orange, people were sharing um, Blade Runner 2046 memes a few years ago on uh, on social so, channels. So yeah, dust social media comes
0: back in. Exactly. So we are already turning it into entertainment and it's probably what's on the card for Mars once people start living there. That. That's going to be the main card.
2: <laughs> you need to develop, there's um, a fantastic Anglo-Saxon word, which I'll probably mispronounce, um, the meaning the contemplation of the dust. Um, so to started by, the Anglo-Saxon poets who are sort of slightly morbid lot, you know, looking on the ruins of Rome that has been sort of abandoned a 100 years previously. And you know, there, were, there were giants there who built these astonishing um, stone buildings and cities, and those those stone buildings have fallen. Um, and so Dusiawan, the contemplation of the dust, is thinking on the inevitability of time, that all things turn to dust given time. Um, it's quite an existential position, and, you know, I think you could certainly... Uh, You know, a a Martian dust showering is an important thing. Of you know, all Mars rovers also turn to dust given time, which is why it's very hard to send a mission there and get it back again without it being completely shredded. Um, You know the uh,
0: and with this. I think poetic trait back to before Christianity. I think we can also close the podcast episode <laughs> <laughs> with a really nice loop back to the very beginning of before dust was even a thing uh in in terms of in terms of culture. Um so um I think with that one, I'm afraid that's all we have uh time for today i want to thank you jay again for joining us and for your amazing insights and your incredible book on dust good luck with it um it's amazing i you know if you haven't read it yet just go grab one it's uh
2: you can't put it down Thanks very much, Fran. And uh, lovely to be able to join our respective interests together. Um, we will contact contempl- social media dust. Let's uh, let's take that one further.
0: I'll keep thinking about that one. Uh, and I want to thank the audience for tuning in and learning all about the audience of dust. And till next time.
1: You've been listening to The Audiences Podcast, the podcast that helps you discover new audiences and learn how to develop your own. Me and the team would love to hear your feedback on the episode and on the podcast in general. Let us know which audiences we should explore next or anyone we should get on the show. Do reach out on our social media or email us at hi audiences.podcast. As always, please rate, review and subscribe. Till next time.